Lord, that's our prayer as we come here every Sunday. It would be an opportunity for us to lay our lives at your feet and offer ourselves to you as an offering through our prayers, through our singing. And now as we come to your word, Lord, we offer our lives to you. Because we want to hear you speak. We want to live in the world in the way that you've called us to live. We want to live with that wholehearted joy and love to follow your will. And so we come to hear you speak to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us powerfully through your word this morning. And that anything that may distract us or hinder us from hearing what you have to say would be removed if we have fears or frustrations or anger that you would wipe that away so that we could hear you speak clearly to us this morning. Father, we pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. We're continuing on in the book of Revelation. And uh, which is going to be a difficult task. I'll just let you know that um, unless I wanted to spend an entire year on Revelation, which I think would wear all of our patience thin, we have to take some of this in big chunks where we go through two chapters at once. And so this morning I get to preach one sermon that probably should be at, at minimum seven. <laughs> but I'm, I'm hoping I have it organized in a way that we're not going to overwhelm Everyone, and we're going to try to cover the whole passage. And since we're covering two full chapters, I thought reading two full chapters would be a little bit much this morning as well. So I have a lot of scripture in my sermon. It'll, we'll, we'll read it, we'll go through it as we go through the morning, but we're not going to read through all two chapters at the beginning of the message this morning. But as I was preparing the message this week, and I forgot I was going to put the cover up there, I was re- reminded of someone who showed me a recent Time Magazine cover. I think it was around November, uh, December, Time Mag- the Time Magazine cover had uh, the year 2020 written on it in big letters with a big, I think it was a big red X through it. And then under it, it had the, the phrase, the worst year ever. And uh, this person kind of brought me the cover and showed it to me and said, do you really think that this is the worst year ever? Um, and I said, it's not a good year, um, but I can't say it's the worst year ever. Uh, I, I mean, if we were to go back and read through our history books, we would recognize that um, there were a lot of years that were a lot worse than, than this one. And um, if you get a chance this week... Um, and maybe we'll overwhelm her, so maybe don't everybody. But call Fenny Shaver, um, who grew up in the Netherlands during the Nazi occupation and had to flee from house to house to house because um, her family was being threatened with being killed and imprisoned by them. <laughs> I, I would bet, I know, because I asked her this, she would say, no, <laughs> this is not the worst year ever. This is not a good year, but it's not the worst year ever. And, and I think if we were to take the Apostle John, the, who wrote the, the book of Revelation, and if we transported him into the year 2020 and we said, John, do you think this is the worst year ever? He would say, no, no, I don't think so. Um, we talked about it a little bit last week, how even John, as he's writing this letter, he's, 
He's in the midst of persecution, right? He's been kicked out. He's been exiled to a deserted island uh, for preaching the gospel and for pointing people to Jesus. And, and he talked about um, how he was a partner in the tribulation of the churches, um, that the churches were being under a lot of tribulation and struggle, and he was a partner with them. But as we get into this, these two chapters and we read, there's seven letters to the seven churches in these two chapters. And as we read through these seven letters to the seven churches, we get a better idea of how difficult their situation was, how heavy the persecution was. Um, There were churches who were being mocked and slandered for their faith. There were Christians being thrown in prison for their faith at the time, and Christians who were even being killed for their faith. So not only were they being exiled to islands for their faith and being thrown in prison and mocked, but some were being killed for it. And that persecution even kind of made its self-visible in, in more subtle ways where they just talk about the tribulation of the church, that, that there's economic things going on. If you're a Christian, people don't want to interact with you or make deals with you in the marketplaces. So there's just a general tribulation with the church. And in, in one city, John says, in your city there is the synagogue of Satan. I mean, that doesn't sound like a city I want to live in, right? The other, another city, he says, the throne of Satan is in your city. And so uh, these churches were in difficult places, difficult positions. And, and so they're facing attack from the outside, um, and yet they're also facing attack from the inside. Um, as we read through these letters, you see that the church is filled with false teachers. Um, it says churches are are allowing the Nicolaitans to be in their midst. And, and Jesus actually speaks so strongly in these letters that he says, the Nicolaitans whom I hate. And the churches are allowing them to be in their church. There's, there's false teachers who teach like Balaam from the Old Testament, kind of this undermining of the church, trying to lead them into sexual immorality, sexual temptation to kind of undermine the work of the church. There's one false teacher he calls Jezebel. I don't think that's her actual name. I think that's symbolic of Jezebel from the Old Testament. But it's a false teacher who's, who's leading the church into sexual immorality, and the church is just following her into that. And, so, and then there's just other false teachers who remain unnamed. And so there's false teachers all over in the church. And so you have this picture of the church being attacked from the outside by the world, but then also from the inside there's false teachers coming in and attacking. But then there's also a picture of the church that the church is just in a culture that is sinful and godless and increasingly tempting them to sin and the church is increasingly becoming more and more like the world and sinning. That's why one of one of the churches is described as there being people who have stained garments talking about the pollution of, of sin in their life. And, and another church, we'll talk about this one more fully, another church has become so much like the world that Jesus says they make him want to vomit. Um, it doesn't use those exact words in your bits. It's a little more sanitized, but, but that's what he says. And so one commentator says that these seven churches were compromising, spiritually lethargic, and flirting with idolatrous allegiances. And so we've got this kind of tenuous picture of what was happening. And yet, 
Um, as I said, I don't think things are that bad here. We can see similarities, though, starting to kind of happen in our culture, right? We, um, we see Christians being ostracized for their beliefs. That's happening, and it's kind of increasingly happening. We see false teachers in the church, and they're running rampant. They're te- posting their, their false teaching on TV and on the Internet, and they're, they're doing that all over the place. And, and we're a church in a culture that is increasingly running away from God, running into sin, and the church is always feeling this pull to become more like the world. And uh, I don't like to be a pessimist or a bearer of bad news, but I don't see it getting better anytime soon. I mean, unless Jesus comes back, or unless God brings revival, which I'm praying for, um, things are going to keep going down this road. The church is going to come under heavier persecution, and the world's going to be more messy, and the church is going to be messier. And so what we read in these two chapters is really helpful for us because it's talking about how all these different churches respond in the midst of this kind of a culture that they're in, where there's, where there's persecution, where there's false teaching, and where there's temptation. How are these churches responding? And so he writes, there's seven letters to seven churches, and these are the same seven churches that are mentioned in chapter 1. John said he's actually writing the book of Revelation to these seven churches. And so, and they're real churches. I've actually been to the locations of, I was supposed to be to the locations of four of the seven, and then we got a foot of snow. And uh, who would have thought over in Turkey I wouldn't be able to get to one of the, be, I missed out on going to one of these churches because the bus couldn't get there. <laughs> but I got to go to three of them. These were real churches. There were churches going there. So he's writing about things that were actually going on in the church at the time, and yet it's also important to know uh, or remember that in chapter one, John tells us, you know, pay attention for symbolism that pops up, right? I'm going to throw things out there, and I want you to catch that and interpret it symbolically when you can. And so, whenever you see the number seven anywhere in the Bible, that should be like a big beacon, like something else is going on here, right? The number seven has been significant in the Bible ever since creation when God created the, the heavens and the earth in, in seven days. And, and at the end of seven days, the number seven represented you know, the completeness of creation, but also when creation was done, it was full. It was teeming with life. And so the number seven has this idea of completeness, but also um, fullness to it. And so you might ask the question, well, why did John, you know, why did Jesus tell John to write this to seven churches and not eight? Well, because seven is a number that represents the fullness of the church. And so this is, these seven churches are, are a picture of what the church is going to look like in the world from the point when Christ died and rose again until when Christ comes back that you're going to have these seven churches working in the world. Some people think that, that these are like different ages of the church throughout history. I don't think so because these were all at, on earth at the same time. Um, and it's a picture of this is what the church looks like throughout history. And it's not always a pretty picture. <laughs> but you also, as you go through each of these churches, you get a picture of how churches respond in the, in the face of persecution, um, false teaching, and temptation. 
And so you have the church of Ephesus at the beginning. And so they're facing persecution. They're facing false teaching and, uh, and temptation. And Jesus comes to them and says, I know your works. How does he know their works? Because of the last chapter we saw that he's right here with the churches, right? Jesus is walking amongst the churches. He knows what's going on. And he commends them and he says, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So in the midst of all of this temptation, persecution, false teaching, he comes to the church at Ephesus and says, hey, you're doing good in some areas. You're, you're working hard. You're enduring. You're not giving up. You're not growing weary. You're, you see false teachers in your church and you're calling them out. You're correcting them. You're doing that. You're, you're teaching doctrine. You're, you're doing church discipline. And Jesus says, good job. That's what you should be doing. These are good things. But then he says, but I have this against you. You abandoned the love you had at first. And so on the one hand, they've got all these things going good for them. They, they're, they're, they're teaching doctrine. They're doing church discipline. They're, they're, they're working hard. They're not giving up. They're, they're not growing weary and just kind of petering out. And yet he says, you got distracted somewhere in the midst of this. And you lost your first love. And when he talks about losing your first love, he's talking about like the two great commandments, love of God and love of neighbor. Because the Bible says you can't separate those two, right? When in, in John's letters, he says, if you say you love God but hate your neighbor, you're a liar. You can't ever separate those two. So when you lose your first love, you're losing your love of God and your love of neighbor. And so Jesus says, yeah, you're doing good here, but you're struggling over here. They have the church of Thyatira where Jesus comes to them and they're facing persecution and false teaching and temptation. And he says, I know your works, your love, your faith, service, patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So he comes to the church and says, you're, you're doing good and you're, you're loving people. You're working hard. You're serving people. You're enduring in the midst of this. But he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. They're doing really good over here and yet they're tolerating this false teacher that's leading people astray, leading them into sin. You know, and you kind of have two opposites going on here, right? Some, some people characterize the church in Ephesus as the unloving doctrinal church. Right? They, they like doctrine, they get caught up in the work of the church, but then they've kind of got distracted and lost their first love. Well, you can kind of flip that and say, well, Thyatira is the loving, tolerant church. And tolerant in a bad sense of the way. Where they're, they're loving on people, they, they do that, but they're not addressing the false teacher in their midst or, or the sin in their midst. And Jesus says, they're both wrong. <laughs> not, one's not better than the other one. They both are falling off the map. Neither temptation is good as a church. And he goes to the church of Pergamum. And they're facing persecution and false teaching and temptation. And he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know you're in a really tough city. 
but you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he comes to this church and says, I know you're in a difficult spot. The throne of Satan is here. There's so much idolatry and, and uh, hatred towards God's people here and yet you hold fast to my name. You don't give up. And, and you haven't denied my name even when you see Christians being killed for the faith like Antipas. And yet he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so you have a, a picture of a church, I, I call it the, the faithful cowards. <laughs> who they're faithful, they won't deny God's name, they, they won't, they, they'll hold on fast to the truth, but, but they kind of just want to keep their head tucked and they don't want to cause problems. They don't, they don't want to address the false... T- they've got two different false teachings raging through their church, leading people astray, and they just don't want to cause problems, and so they just don't say anything. They just, as long as we don't deny Jesus, we're fine. And yet it starts to kind of undermine the church. <laughs> then you have the church in Sardis. And they've got persecution and false teaching... And temptation, and Jason, ha- uh, not Jason, Jesus. We're not the same. <laughs> Trust me. Jesus comes to this church and he has nothing good to say to them. Ouch, right? He comes to them and he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I mean, this is the church that every other church wants to be. They've got all the best programs, all the best, you know, whatever. <laughs> all the best programs, all the best everything. They've got the best facility. They've got the, the young hip pastor. They've got everything going on for them. And every church wants to be like this church. And yet Jesus says, yeah, it looks good on the outside, but it's dead. It's full of dead men's bones. Um, I call this church the church of the whitewashed tombs, as Jesus would call it. And then you have the church of Laodicea, which is even worse. Um, Jesus has nothing good to say to them either in the midst of the, how they're handling persecution, temptation, false teaching. He says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And spit you out of my mouth is just a sanitized version of you make me want to vomit, which is hard. And, and why? Like, what's going on in this church that makes that strong of a reaction to Jesus? He says, because, that word for just means because you say, church, that I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Um, Laodicea was a, an impressive city. Um, I got to go visit this one. I, I didn't have time to put pictures in this week. Um, but it was massive, and it was known as a church that said, or as a city that said, we've got this under control. We don't need anybody. We've got enough wealth, enough money, enough power. We don't need anybody else, and that creeped into the church to where the church said, we've got everything we need. We look at the world around us. We've got everything we need. We don't even need Jesus. We need nothing, and Jesus says, That makes me want to vomit you out of my mouth. 
It's not good. This is the church that sold out to the world. Which is, it's pretty depressing so far, right? Like, oh my goodness, you know, is there any good churches here? I mean, is there anything decent? And, and you don't forget the three of them had a lot of good stuff going on, and there's some correction. There's two of them that he gives nothing, has nothing good to say about, but there's also two of them of the seven that he has only good things to say to them. The church in Smyrna, he says, I know your tribu- tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Right? So this church is interacting with the synagogue of Satan, people who are coming after them, slandering them, mocking them, saying to the church, you are nothing but a bunch of poor fools. Because they are poor. And yet Jesus says, you're not actually poor. Spiritually, you are rich. And people may slander you, but you're enduring and you're and you're holding on to the faith. And so he, Jesus says, keep up the good work. I mean, that's how they endure. They, they encountered the same persecution, the same false teaching, the same temptation, and yet they became spiritually rich and held fast to the faith. Um, and Jesus says, keep it up. And just a side note, this is the only one of these seven cities that still has a Christian church in it today. Uh, it's interesting. All the other six um, have been basically destroyed, and there's no church there. Um, this is modern-day Izmir today, is, is the city of Smyrna back then. And my guide, my guide through Turkey, was from Izmir, so he was pretty proud of the fact that <laughs> we're the only one of these seven churches who still has a Christian church in it. You have the church of Philadelphia, and they're facing persecution, false teaching, temptation and Jesus says I know your works behold I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name this is the small church seemingly insignificant from the world around them seemingly have no power and yet he says you've kept my word you haven't denied my name you've been faithful and he said and I've opened a door before you, which means to fruitful ministry. Which, when, when God says he's opened a door, he means I'm opening the door for you to bring the gospel into the city where you're at. In the midst of tribulation, in the midst of false teaching, in the midst of temptation, I've opened a door. No one's going to shut it. The world thinks they can shut the door. They can't. And you're going to go out with the gospel. And the, church, and the world may think you're small and insignificant, but I'm going to show them this small and insignificant church is going to bring the gospel and have a powerful impact. So this is the other church. Smyrna's the, the spiritually rich church. This is the faithfully fruitful church. And, it, and it's important to just kind of take a step back and, and recognize a, a couple of things. Um, as we've kind of gone through and looked at these seven churches, um, don't you think, if you were to start thinking about the current outlook landscape of the church today. Um, I think it's a fairly accurate representation of where we're at as a church today. Um, At first I said, I bet if we put a 20-mile radius around Beaver Dam, we could find all seven of these churches. Um, I bet if we worked hard enough and we knew, I bet we could find them all in Beaver Dam. Um, All seven of these churches right here in Beaver Dam. And Jesus says, they're going to be there. You're going to have all seven of these represented throughout history. 
some who've sold out to the world, some who are the unloving doctrinal church, some who are the loving and tolerant church, some who are the faithful cowards, some who are spiritually rich, some who are faithfully fruitful, some who are sold out to the world. They're all going to be there, um, which also then brings up the question that we have to ask, um, which church are we? Um, and for us to, I'm not going to tell you what I think, and I don't even know what I think fully yet, but it's a question for us to ask, which one of these churches are we? Are we the unloving doctrine church, the loving tolerant church, the faithful cowardice church, the whitewashed tomb church, sold out to the world church, spiritually rich church, faithfully fruitful church? And I think these were written to groups of people, to churches, and yet Churches are just made up of individuals, and so it is important to ask yourself not only what is our church, but what am I? Am I the unloving doctrine Christian? Am I the loving, tolerant Christian? Am I the faithful, coward Christian? Am I the. And ask yourself that because depending on which one of these you are, Jesus has different words for you. Um. And so it's important to, to kind of situate ourselves as a church and, and where you are at as a person to hear what Jesus has to say to you. But to the five churches that he has something against, he tells every one of them, repent. I mean, that's how we respond. When, when we recognize that there's something in us that, that is outside of God's will, the response is, repent. Turn away from that and turn back to Jesus. And so to the unloving doctrine church, Jesus says, remember from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from Remember the love you had at first. Before you got distracted in all the work of the church, before you got distracted rooting out false teachers, before you got distracted. I mean, you can come after false teachers and just be a crab, right? I mean, you, I know people like that. They're just crabby. And uh, we're called, R.C. Sproul said we're called to be a joyful warrior as we, as we do this. And, and so he's, Jesus says, remember where you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. And he said, this is serious. If you don't, I will remove your lampstand, which means I'll take your church. That's significant. If you don't repent from this, if you are a church that has lost your love, he said, I will take your church. I'll remove it. Unless you repent. If you repent, start doing the works you've done at first, remember where you fell, then I'm, he said he'll come, he'll bless the church. To the loving, tolerant church, he says, I'll come and throw her, this is Jezebel, the false teacher, I'll throw her onto a sick bed. Those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And so he says, I will come and I will judge the, the false teacher among you and I will judge all those who have fallen away and followed her teaching. Um, I'll bring them into tribulation. I will, I will come and, and unless they repent. And so the call is repent. Turn away from the false teaching. And, uh, and to the church, it's a call to remove this false teacher from your midst because she's bringing judgment on your church and you're allowing it to happen. So repent and remove her and, 
And if you've fallen into her teaching, repent and come back to Christ. To the faithful cowardice church, he says, repent. If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them, the false teachers, with the sword of my mouth. Um, On the one hand, Jesus says, if you're not willing to do this... (laughs) I'm going to come and do this, and I'll make war with them with the sword of his mouth, which is the authoritative word of God. I'm going to come with the authoritative word of God and make war against the false teachers in your midst and those who have been led astray by that. And so he says, repent. I don't want to do that, right? I mean, this is, and when you hear Jesus giving these warnings, it's like the parent, right? When you come to my, I've come to my child before and said, stop doing this, or I'm going to give you a swat on the butt, and I don't want to do that. Okay? I do not want to do that, so please stop. And then they do that, and I'm like, darn it. Now, now you know what i got to do. Right? But I don't want to do this. I, I want to enter into a relationship with you differently. And that's why Jesus is coming to these churches and saying, if you don't stop doing this, I'm coming. And I'm going to give you a swat. <laughs> so stop. Repent. Turn back. To the the whitewashed tomb church. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. He said, there's still a little life left. Strengthen the life that's left. Wake up. Because I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And when he talks about what you received and heard, he's talking about the apostles' teaching, which is the Bible. He says, remember it. Remember God's word that was given to you and then keep it, which means obey it. Follow it. Go back to God's word. Remember what God has told you. Stir up any life that's left in you and then follow him and repent of where you're at. And then life will begin to breathe through your church again. To the church that's been sold out to the world, he says, here's the counsel I give you. Buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He says to the church that sold out to the world, find your treasure and your hope and your comfort in me, not in the world. Um, This church says, we've got everything we need. We don't need anything. And Jesus told them, actually, you're wretched, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And the way you're going to solve those problems is not by going out to the store and buying better clothes. It's by coming to me and receiving the robes of righteousness that I can give you. The way you're going to solve your blindness is not to go out into the world to find it, but to come to me and I'll give you something so you can see the world rightly. And so Christ says, You need to repent, and if you're going to repent, that means coming to me to meet all of the needs that you have and to find your treasure and joy in me, not in the world, because what the world has to offer you will not meet those needs. To the spiritually rich and the faithfully fruitful churches, he says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Just keep on keeping on. Don't quit. Hold fast. I've got you. I'm going to protect you. 
But to this church, now notice the difference. This one, he says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial, right? He's going to protect them from trial. This church, he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer because the devil's going to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful even to death, and I will give you the crown of life. So to one church, he says, I'm going to keep you from trial. The other church, he says, I'm going to hold on to you through trial. You see that? One's going to go through the fire. One's going to go through the flames. They're going to be thrown in prison. They're going to lock up. Some are going to die. And he says, I've got you anyways, and I'll give you the crown of life. So be faithful unto death. Keep the word of God. Be faithful. But what I want to talk about at kind of at the end here is what type of church are we called to be, right? We see all of these churches that have some positive, some negative, some that are all negative, some that are all positive. But, but as we recognize that we're in a culture where persecution is increasing, false teaching is increasing, temptation is increasing, what type of church has Christ called us to be in the world? And you can kind of get that by looking at taking out all the positives that Jesus told churches and, and trying to correct some of the rebukes that Jesus told some of these churches. And uh, I kind of summarize them in, in four characteristics. That we're called to be a doctrinal, loving, faithful, and bold church in the world. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of false teaching, Christ says, you need to be a church that knows what false teaching is. You can't neglect that. But you also need to be a church that loves God and loves people. You can't neglect that. But you also need to be a church that is faithful, faithful unto death, who keeps my word and won't quit. You can't neglect that. And you also need to be a church that is bold with the, with the gospel, that's not afraid to deny Christ's name, that's, that's able to be faithful unto death in the midst of this. And you have to hold all of these. We can't. He doesn't give us the option of saying, well, we're going to pick three of the four. No, we can't do that. We can't sacrifice doctrine for love. We can't sacrifice love for doctrine. We can't sacrifice faithful for boldness. That's what all the other churches were doing. And Jesus said, if you keep doing that, I'm going to have to come in, in judgment. So we need to, he calls us to be a church that's doctrinal, loving, faithful, and bold. And a church that's willing to step through any open door that Christ sets before us. Because um, he will bless that. But this is, it's obviously not an easy task. I don't think we're any better than any of those churches back in um, when, that John was writing to or the church throughout the ages. It's difficult. That's why churches are always kind of falling between one of these seven churches. And we're always tempted to neglect one of these four things. Tempted to neglect doctrine or love or our faithfulness or our boldness. But one of the things that Jesus does as he ends every one of these letters is he gives us this beautiful picture and promise and says, I know it's going to be tough for you to be this church in the world. I know it's going to be tough for you to turn from your ways. Um, But for those that do, here's something beautiful in store for you. Um, And the, the summary of all these is those who conquer, those who are willing to be this type of church, these type of Christians in the world, they will spend eternity with Christ in his presence. So hold on tight. 
keep fighting the good faith, um, the fight of faith. So what I want to do is I just want to read those seven promises. I'm, I'm just going to read them and let them kind of wash over you. Um, and uh, it's my prayer that as we read through these seven promises to those who overcome, those who conquer, those who, who keep fighting the good fight of faith, that not only that would stir up in your heart to desire to be this type of people and church in the world, but I think it's also there to firm our resolve to say, Christ has got us, and we're going to keep fighting the good fight of faith. We're going to hold on. We're going to be faithful. We're going to be bold. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll feed you. I'll give him a white stone, which is purity. I'll give a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. It'll be a new person. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself, this is Jesus speaking, I myself have received authority from my Father. I'll give him the morning star, which is Jesus. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. You'll be made pure. I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. You'll have eternal life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven And I'll also write my own name on him. And to the one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. All God's people said, amen. Let's come to God in prayer. Father, we come to you, and we give you thanks and praise for your faithfulness. Lord, we think of the persecution and the false teaching and the temptation that has waged war against your church for thousands of years, and yet we're still here. Not only are we still here, Lord, but your church is still growing throughout the world. You've blessed us. You've protected us. You've kept us. And Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy because we know that the church has not been perfect throughout these years. There have been churches who have been unloving. There have been churches who have been too tolerant of false teaching. There have been churches who have died, churches who have sold out to the world. And yet you have not given up on us. You keep coming to us, calling us back to you, promising eternal life and hope and beauty for those who turn back to you. So we thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, we pray that you would show us where we're at and show us the things we need to turn from, the things we need to repent from so that we could be your people faithful in the world. We pray, Lord, that you would work in our own lives and the life of this church to make us doctrinal, loving, faithful, and bold witnesses in this world for you. And Father, we pray that you'd open a door for faithful, fruitful ministry for us here, right here in Beaver Dam, Lord. 
that you'd open a door and that we'd step through and that we'd see your gospel move forward. We pray that you'd open that door in our nation, Lord, as we know that that's the only way we'll truly see change in our country is as hearts are changed according to the gospel, Lord. So open the door here as well. But if not, help us to remain your doctrinal, loving, faithful, and bold church in this world. And may we look forward to the day when we'll spend eternity with you, crowned in righteousness and ruling and reigning with you. And all God's people said, amen.